0: morning church good to see everybody here we're going to be in Deuteronomy again this morning getting back at it Deuteronomy chapter 9 turn with me there in your copy of the scripture if you're guest with us my name is Kelly I serve as senior pastor here at Glowing Bible Church and if you're bold enough after service love to have you come down front as a guest introduce yourself to me I'm going to be hanging out down front your left my right after the service would love to I know walking down front I had one guy do it this morning Take that long walk down front to to come introduce yourself. But, love to have you down front. Meet our guests is a real joy for me. Uh, If if that's something you can't muster, that's fine too. We have a welcome booth out in the Welcome Center just through the foyer. There at the welcome booth is someone who'd be happy to get to know you a little bit and answer any questions you might have about our community of faith. There's a book there at the welcome booth for our guests, or really for anybody. It explains our aim as a church. The title of the book's Following Jesus. Love to have you have a copy of that. It'll help you get to know us a little bit. And then everybody's encouraged to go into Rathbun Hall after service, have a cup of coffee and a donut. Great place to meet one another, get to know folks. And I should say, I'll take this opportunity to say to the members, regular attenders, if you see somebody stand on the margin, reach out to them. It can be intimidating to come to a church for the first time, the second time, And uh, we need to be reaching out. Be friendly. Let's be those folks that embrace one another, bring one another into community. Right? Right? All right. Good. I thought I'd share with you a little from a book I've been reading to start us out this morning. I want to give you a window into um, my heart and (laughs) how it's been vexed over the last week, how the Lord's been working in my life. It started a little over a week ago. Uh, Some friends and I have been discussing a book titled An Alarm to the Unconverted, written by Joseph Aline. Wouldn't it surprise me if no one else in the room, maybe there's two others in the book group from this congregation, uh, but wouldn't it surprise me if no one else in the room has ever heard of this book, published in 1671. Aline was an English pastor and a nonconformist. Which meant that he was a, a pastor in the Church of England, but was resisting the Church of England and their leadership and not wanting to conform to certain practices within the Church of England, certain doctrine. He was a part of a renewal movement or the continued effort at reformation in the Protestant churches. You may be more familiar with the goal of nonconformity when referred to as Puritans. Puritans. Aline was a Puritan, which meant simply he wanted to purify the Protestant church further of anything that smacked of Catholicism. Puritans took aim at things like worship liturgies, uh, hierarchical uh, leadership, the priesthood in the Church of England, uh, certain doctrines like praying to the to the saints. Puritan influence spanned the 16th, the 17th, and the 18th centuries. It also spread across continents. It was a tremendous influence in the founding of America. As nonconformists were chased out of England because they wouldn't conform, and they fled to the New World, the colonies, for religious freedoms. Pilgrims, for example, that founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the state of Massachusetts, Uh, They were Puritans. They were nonconformists. Harvard College was a Puritan college founded to train preachers. Uh, uh, Roger Williams, the founder of the state of Rhode Island, the Rhode Island colony, was a Puritan nonconformist who had been chased out of England. Generally generally speaking, Puritan theology had this really high view of scripture, believing it was breathed by God himself given for humanity that it was authoritative and that we should live it out we still believe that today right that's why we sit and listen to God's word read publicly and preached and, and we pray Lord make a soft soil to receive your word but not just hear it but actually do it this is a part of the Puritan influence in the American culture Puritans also placed a great emphasis on the depravity of humanity, that is to say, our sinfulness. The famous American pastor and arguably the best theologian America has ever turned out in the Protestant world, Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan. Best known, probably, for his his sermon titled, anybody know it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You don't hear many sermons titled that, do you? Google it later today. Read it. It's a challenging read for sure. That preacher, Jonathan Edwards, also went on to be the president of Princeton University, another preacher's college when it was launched. Having a passion for scripture and holiness, for sure, Puritanism also had what I would describe as a harsh underbelly. H.L. Mencken, a 20th century journalist, described Puritanism this way, its culture. He said, it is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What would give him this idea? Well, in the Puritan crusade against sin and their zeal for holiness, colonial Puritan leaders created a culture of shame. There's no other way to describe it. But not only shame, it was also a culture that was filled with cruel and unusual punishments, in some cases, sanctioned violence. For example, the Salem Witch Trials, 1692 um, to 93, 20 people put to death, 200 accused of witchcraft because of the Puritan zeal or fear of all things satanic. The famed book, The Scarlet Letter, which I read in high school, right? It's part of the uh, American literature course, written in 1850 by Nathaniel Hawthorne, based in puritanical punishments. The famed Scarlet Letter's protagonist, Hester Prynne, was caught in adultery, imprisoned for adultery. Can you imagine? And then for the rest of her life, made to wear a red letter A on her Garments to indicate her sin, public shaming, guilt. This was par for the course because of this puritanical zeal. The Puritans also made famous not just public shaming, but devices that inflicted pain, the stockade. That is to bind people publicly, hands and feet, and place them in the town square. And a bulletin was placed about the sin that they had committed. I learned this week of a Puritan punishment called the cleft stick. If you were caught lying, your tongue would be pierced, and you had to walk around with the piercing. It wasn't cool back then. (laughs) I share all this so that you'll know my frame of mind. My disposition as I went to book group, that's where I started, do you remember, have we lost our way? reading this book, An Alarm to the Unconverted. This was my disposition. This was what's in the back of my mind. I've read Puritan books before. Honestly, I wasn't in the mood for the spiritual equivalent of a root canal. But, and not to mention, the book group was on a Friday morning at 6 a.m. So when asked what I thought about the book, I quoted the following right out of the book. Meditate on the number of your sins. Then later in the chapter, these lines were spoken. Meditate upon the aggravation of your sins. Meditate on the deformity and the defilement of your sins. After highlighting these lines, I shared that while Puritans served as a much-needed corrective within the Church of England, I'm not sure that we're supposed to meditate on the number of our sins their aggravations their deforming influence in our lives they're defiling elements in our lives I'm not sure that's profitable I shared on a Friday morning at 6 a.m. it seems like what I would put in the category of Puritan excesses And as smugly <laughs> and as eloquently as I could I said I think we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus and I felt pretty good about what I had to say until I started preparing for this week's sermon. We're in Deuteronomy 9. Do you have your copy of the scriptures open there? It'll be on the screen as well. I'd encourage you to open if you have your copy and underline the first words in verse 7. They're underlined in my copy of of God's word. Remember this and never forget remember and never forget never ever a double negative never forget it how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness from the day you left Egypt until you arrived here you have been rebellious against the Lord remember it and don't ever forget it it's an interesting instruction I wonder, is that our posture towards our sin? I wonder if Moses has read the Puritans. That was a joke. That's the best one I got. (laughs) I know, I'm sure the Puritans read Moses. Remember and never forget your sinfulness, how you rebelled against the Lord, made him angry. So what do you think? Next book group, I think, is September 16th. We're still in the same book. Should I eat crow? Should I go back and retract my rather smug um, opinion and posture towards Aline's work? I'm going to be vulnerable with you all week long. I've had a fairly uh, frictious internal dialogue about my posture that morning. Talking to God, it goes something like this. Well, God... You can remember your sins without meditating on them. Certainly, you don't want us to meditate. Eileen couldn't have that right. I can never forget my sins, right? I I want to hear the word of the Lord through Moses for us. Now, Deuteronomy wasn't written to me. It wasn't written to anybody in this room, but mark my words. It was written for us by the Holy Spirit's inspiration. God, I, I can remember. I can never forget without without wallowing in the aggravation of my sins and the defilement they brought to my life and the deformity they've had upon my character, the way they've bent me against your will and purposes, right? And I'm back and forth with God on this. What do you think? What is our posture toward our sin? These words in Deuteronomy 9 are spoken to God's people. They're standing at the threshold of the promised land. They're ready to go in. This is like the locker room talk. They're getting ready to go hit somebody out on the playing field. Remember and never forget how you angered the Lord your God in your rebellion. I just don't think we hear that much from the pulpits of America. I certainly didn't offer that a week ago Friday to my friends in book group. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been making our way through Deuteronomy really slowly. Lord willing, we'll wrap it up right before Christmas. Deuteronomy is a recapitulation of the law. Moses is revisiting the law. The first time was uh, 40 years earlier. In the book of Exodus, it's recounted. And now he's, four years later, he's, they're getting ready, Israel's getting ready in their promised land, and he's gonna, he's gonna to, to give it one more plug, here's how you're gonna honor God as you enter the promised land. Here's your, how you're gonna live as God's people. The first time he communicated the law to Israel, it was at the, ba- the base of Mount Horeb. In fact, that is where and when they aroused the Lord's anger and rebelled against him. This, at the base of Mount Horeb, as they had just come out of Egypt, that's that's the reference that he's making in Deuteronomy 9. Remember remember how you behaved. At the base of Mount Horeb, as you rebelled against God. Now, 40 years later, he's drawing it to their attention. Don't ever forget that. How did they rebel? How did they arouse the Lord's anger? It's a fairly well-known story. I'll quickly retell it. Israel was being held in Egyptian slavery. Moses comes in. The Pharaoh resists him. Ten plagues come down on Egypt, right? The Pharaoh relents finally. Israel marches out with all the wealth of Egypt. The Egyptians are so eager to see them go. They, Israel pilfers the wealth of Egypt and walks out. And then Pharaoh double, he has a, a second thought. He says, oh, there went all our slaves and he pursues them their backs Israel's back against the wall of the Red Sea they can't then God through Moses opens the Red Sea and they walk through their baptism that's the picture Israel is baptized by God first they're delivered from the slavery of Egypt then they're baptized as they walk through the Red Sea and then they're going to go to Mount Horb and receive the covenant stipulations the 10 commandments the same is true for us today first God delivers us from sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Then we get baptized. Then we learn what it is to walk and follow after Jesus. It's the same paradigm today for us. If you've not been baptized, speak with a staff member here at Glenn Bible Church. We'd love to see you. Mark the moment when you realize you've been miraculously delivered from slavery to sin, which Blake talked about this morning, which communion represents. We're trusting in his righteousness. Out of Egypt through the Red Sea their baptism they're camped at the base of Mount Horeb there they affirm God we will follow you all this is told in Exodus 32 in Deuteronomy 9 he revisits this story quickly I would encourage you to read Exodus 32 later today at the base of Mount Horeb after coming through the Red Sea just having been baptized miraculously Moses calls uh, them to commit, and they say, Yea, verily, we will serve Yahweh and him alone. He'll be our God, we'll be his people. And Moses goes up on Horeb to get the covenant stipulations. Here's how you're going to honor me, the Ten Commandments. Well, he goes up on the mountain. Joshua goes about halfway up with him. There he's with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. In Exodus and in Deuteronomy, you learn that God himself wrote the ten commandments on stone the the notion that we would have the written word of god as an aside a complete aside this was god's idea this wasn't humanity's idea he pinned the commandments he he was the first to pin the word of god right for us well, while he's up there on on the mountain receiving the commands. <laughs> Something strange and uh, ungodly and sinful and rebellious is going on down in the camp. And again, they had just said, we'll serve Yahweh, we will be his people, he will be our God. And Joshua says to Moses, "Something. I hear a noise like thunder coming out of the camp. And it was idolatry, and it was revelry, and it was debauchery god tells moses you better get down to the base of the camp and he takes the commandments with him as he goes and when he gets there he sees that the camp has broken out it's complete idolatry moses was up on the mountain so long that the people got afraid they said he's abandoned us and they pressured aaron moses's brother and the priest of the people of god to make an idol someone they could see Never mind the fact that the first and second commandments is you'll have no other God before me and you'll make no graven image, right? Moses comes down off the mountain with the covenant stipulations to find them breaking the first two. And so he, in anger, throws the the tablets down and they break. It's symbolic. The people have broken their relationship with God already. There's sin in them. Now, mind you, this is after they have been delivered from slavery, baptized through the Red Sea, and they're they're sinning again. I won't ask us for a show of hands. How many of us have trusted in Christ, followed in baptism, and we're still sinning? That is the human condition of those who are trusting in Jesus. My question is today, what are we doing with our sin? Moses throws down the tablets. And then there's a bloodletting, there's a disciplinary action. He gets the people back under control and he goes back up on the mountain where he intercedes for the people of God. And so you're reading through Deuteronomy chapter nine, he says, remember and never forget how you rebelled and aroused the Lord's anger. And then he tells the story that I just told. And then he goes back up on on the mountain for another set of tablets, he broke them. You get this picture of covenant jeopardy. What is God going to do with our sin? I'm going to skip to verse 25. It's Moses describing how he interacted with God as he went back up on the mountain and needed another set of tablets. Deuteronomy 9, 25, I lay prostrate before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Because the Lord had said, he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and you brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember how you saved them. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember how you promised that you would establish this people and their descendants. Remember your covenant commitments overlook the stubbornness of this people their wickedness and their sin otherwise the country from which you brought us will say egyptians will say because the lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them and because he hated them he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness otherwise the egyptians are going to misunderstand what's going on here the other nations and the non-believing peoples but they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought up by your great power and your outstretched arm. In other words, do this for your namesake. Overlook their stubbornness, their wickedness, their sin. So Moses goes back up on the mountain. God makes a second set of stone tablets. He pins them with the finger of God. But even more important than the replacement of the tablets was the work of prayer that Moses did on the mountain, which resulted in the forgiveness of God being extended towards the people. God's so angry with Israel for their idolatry that he wanted to destroy them, but Moses intercedes. Pop quiz, who intercedes for us this morning? Christ lives to make intersections intercession for us. Moses stood in the gap, pleaded with God, overlooked their stubbornness of this people, their wickedness, their sin. Yes, Israel was rebellious. Yes, Israel was hard-hearted and stubborn. They were stiff-necked, but Moses prayed for them. God remained faithful to his covenant despite the faithlessness of his people. Folks, this is good news for us because one greater than Moses has come. What is the biblically appropriate posture toward my continuing in sin? It's certainly not permissiveness. It's not a green light, go and live like hell because heaven's your certain home. No. But neither is it the Puritan excesses of shame and guilt and even violence in some cases are we to have a puritanical obsession with sin when we read Moses's directive to remember and never forget how are we to apply Deuteronomy 97 to our lives you may be asking are we to apply Deuteronomy 9 verse 7 to our lives isn't that Old Testament and we, we have a New Testament reality in Christ are we really to be keenly aware of how our spiritual ancestors, the people of God, behaved? Are we, to, are we to take Moses' words to the Israelites as if they were spoken to us? I think we are. I think we are based on Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews is a New Testament book, obviously written, written to converted Israelites, those converted is those who are trusting in Christ as the Messiah, the writer gives this charge in Hebrews chapter 3 therefore holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling fix your thoughts on Jesus this is what I so smugly quoted to uh, the book group a little over a week ago whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest fix your eyes on Christ he was faithful to the one who appointed him, that is, God the Father, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Why? Because just as the builder of a house has a greater honor than the house itself. We know, according to Colossians 1-7, that by Christ and through Christ has all things, have all things been made. He's the builder of the house. We are the house of God, the people of God's another m- metaphor, the family of God, the body of God. The- Moses was a part of that. But one greater than Moses has come upon whom we're to fix our eyes. Who lives to make intercession, we're told. So I was at least partially correct at book club. John chapter one, the gospel of John, chapter one says, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Someone asked me after first service, can I get too fixated on the grace of God? I think that's worth asking. (laughs) I think we could get so fixated on the grace of God that we forget the law, our rebellion, the anger of God towards our sinfulness That we miss out on the grace of God. I've said many times, without the bad news of a gospel, it's impossible to enjoy the good news of the gospel. You've got to know the bad news, or the good news is just, well, it's okay news. The bad news is that we are sinful. And that apart from the substitutionary atonement of Christ, we are born biologically separated from God eternally. But through Christ and through faith in Christ, this makes the news beautiful, rich. His lavish love has been shown towards us. We who are sinful can escape. We can escape the condemnation brought upon us because of our sin. So it would be easy to conclude that we're to simply fix our eyes on Christ According to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, but keep reading. Let me read a little further for you. Verse 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit spoke this. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did. You, us, our spiritual forefathers did. The people of God did. Don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness when your ancestor tested and tried me, though for 40 years they, they saw what I did. How I cared is his point and, and carried them along despite their faithlessness. This is why I was angry that that gen- with that generation and I said their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my way, so I declared on an oath in my anger, they'll never enter my rest. That first generation that came out and walked through the Red Sea and then reveled in idolatry at the base of Mount Horeb, God said they'd not enter. That first generation didn't know what it was to enter the promised land because of their rebellion and their hard-heartedness. And then the writer of Hebrews in verse 12 says, See to it. See to what? That none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart, that turns away from the living God. I wonder, no need to wonder how sin impacts our heart. It makes it increasingly difficult to follow after Jesus as men and women of faith. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. There is a deceitfulness that comes through sin in our lives as we toy with sin and cultivate sin and get entangled in sin. Our hearts grow hard and we grow deceived. It makes it harder and harder to believe and follow after our Savior. See to it. Remember and never forget your rebellion. What do we, how do we handle our sin? What do we do with it? A week ago, I wasn't in the mood for what I described as a spiritual root canal, which the Puritans are famous for. But the writer of Hebrews says, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Here's my takeaway for those trusting in Jesus, surveying our hearts for sinfulness is a means to entering God's rest. Yes, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. But we're to see to it that. We're to remember and never forget the damage that sin does in our lives. We all want more rest. We all want more peace of God. We all want more fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Without a doubt, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We want these things in our lives. We want the rest of of knowing that he's at work in our lives and caring for us. See to it then. See to it. That you don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart. A couple weeks ago at Worship in the Park, I gave what is a little reflection on what's become my One of my favorite New Testament verses, it's the invitation of Jesus, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Sin steals our rest. We move towards sin saying, oh, this is gonna give me what I need. It's gonna meet that deep longing and then we're deceived by it and it leaves us empty and restless. Come to Jesus. Blake mentioned this morning that If you're not yet trusting in Jesus, then listen to the lavish love of God towards you in Christ. And I would urge you, trust, begin now. Trusting in Christ. You can do that right where you're seated. You just say to your creator, he hears you. You have a discussion like I had all week, the back and forth with God about, am I handling my sin rightly or wrongly? Am I avoiding, am I denying my sin, or am I acknowledging it? Am I seeing to it that I'm I not having a sinful, unbelieving heart? The dialogue I had all week with my creator, you can have with your creator and say, I see the sin. I thank you for the sin sacrifice that Jesus is. I want to enter his rest. I want to learn to follow him. Maybe you long ago made that decision. I want to encourage you, remember, never forget, what he has brought you out of the bad news of the gospel so that you can revel in the good news of the gospel, of grace. Survey your heart. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. We live in a culture that discourages us to acknowledge our sin. We live in a culture that gives permission to sin. Well, and that's your truth. Folks, there's only one truth. And there's a man of truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Our culture tells us, oh, that's it, your truth. Don't judge me. I work out at a place that revels in a non judgment free zone. I get it. The judgment of God against humanity is guilty. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And if you want to revel in Romans 5.20, the the lavish love of God, the grace of God poured out on us, then we have to give attention to the sin for which we were guilty. And if we want to enjoy the rest of God and the peace of God, then we have to acknowledge when we have sinful, unbelieving hearts. Amen? I'll pray for us. Father, have mercy on us as a people that we'd not get get caught up in the culture that is permissive with regard to sin, nor would we live in a shame and guilt culture, but we'd be a unique culture called out to your people that acknowledges their sin and revels in the grace shown, shown towards us in Christ. For his glory and our good, I pray.